For those of you that have run races recently, and for those of us that it's been a while since we ran a race, think about, you know, they say start, shoot the gun off, blow the whistle, whatever they do to start the thing, and you start running, and then you're giving it everything you got, but there's also runners out there with you, and you start looking at each other and paying some attention to each other because there's a pace they get set in the race. And you're trying to keep each other in that pace. And if the person beside you is going faster than you are, then what do you tend to do? Pick it up so that you can keep up with them. If they're going slower than you are, then you probably don't slow down necessarily unless you want to try to fall back a little bit to encourage them to keep up the pace with you. Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible talks about how we are in a race. We've seen in recent weeks that it is a race of faith. For we are looking to Jesus, who is the author and who is the pioneer of that faith. He gives us that race. He sets the goals before us. But critically important to running that race is keeping pace. And how do we keep pace in the race of faith? Grace... The grace of God is how we keep pace in the race that he's called us. The grace of God. Grace is how we keep the pace for what he's got for us to run. You turn in your Bibles with me this morning. Keeping pace with grace to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. The Bible says that the Lord coaches us. The word used there is discipline. Same idea as being coached. He coaches us as we run this race. He's there to, at times, give us correction. At times, to say, hey, you need to stay more focused. This is what you need to do. He also gets us in touch with His grace so that we stay in pace with Him and what He is doing. As we run, it says that we're running after two things, and we saw this last week. We are running and racing Our goal is two things. The first thing is peace. That's the idea of wholeness. It's the idea of inner healing inside of us. It's allowing God to reach down inside of us and perfect His healing strength in us. The second idea that we're running for is His holiness. And that is a purity and a cleansing that He is perfecting within us. That is shaping and molding us to be like Him. Now, the purpose of that peace and the purpose of that holiness we saw last week, he said, without it, no man will see the Lord. And the idea there, the word see, is that we're not going to be able to discern the presence of God, the will of God, the work of God, the power of God, the love of God, whatever God is wanting to accomplish and do in our lives, we're not going to be able to discern that to see it, to get in the flow of it, to experience it, to be in the pace of it, if we don't have God perfecting His inner healing inside of us, and if we're not walking in His holiness, and that is separation from sin, and a focus on Him, allowing Him to guide and lead us in life. Without that, we're not going to have that ability to discern the presence of the Lord and God's work in our lives. I said to you last week, when you and I begin to ask the question repeatedly, what is the will of God? I can't figure out the will, what the will of God is in life, and I'm struggling to understand and walk in the will of God. The first thing I need to check out is, am I allowing God to bring inner healing to my life? And then secondly, am I really pursuing His holiness? Am I really pursuing God produce purity within me so that I can see and discern and know your hand and your work in my life? 
Now, let's look at keeping the pace of what God is doing in our lives as we follow after His holiness and His peace. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 15 in my sermon outline, is contained in your Rocky Mount Connection. So I invite you, if you will, to follow along with us as we move through that together. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, keeping pace with the grace of God in our lives, notice verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, there are two sides of walking after God's holiness or running this race. One side is seeking an experience of the daily grace of God, and the second is avoiding the roots of bitterness. So we're going to look at both of them. Again, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The idea there of fails to obtain means to fall short of the grace of God. In other words, as I'm moving through life, as I'm living my life every day, he's saying, see to it that you don't fall short of the grace of God. You see, when we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we experience the grace of God initially. We know what the grace of God means for us to be saved by Him, redeemed by Him, claimed by Him healed up on the inside by Him, cleansed and forgiven by Him. But the grace of God is not just reserved for the day you come to know Jesus as your Savior. He has got grace for us to experience every day. And so he's saying, see to it that no one fails to fall short of God's grace. In other words, see to it that you're not missing out on the grace of God each day. See to it that you don't fail to experience the grace that God has for you in Every day that you live. Now notice what he says. See to it. It's a command there in the Greek language. Of which this passage is originally written. But it is also plural. And that's interesting. Because what he's saying here is. I want all of you to see to it. That all of you don't fall short of the grace of God. So in other words. I'm not just looking after myself. And asking myself the question. Did I miss the grace of God today? I'm looking around at my brothers and sisters in Jesus. And I'm asking the question. Are they getting in on the grace of God today? We are encouraging each other. We are sharing together with each other. In a corporate experience. Of the grace of God. And if I see a brother or sister. That's missing their walk. In the grace of God, I begin to pray for them, and then I begin to do in their lives what is necessary to help them experience the grace of God and walk in the grace of God. Folks, if you experience God's grace in your life, and we're going to talk in a few moments about what grace is, but if you experience the grace of God in your life, God pouring His blessing into your life, but you and I fail to share that with someone else, fail to encourage another brother and sister in Christ in that, then we're failing to help them keep up in the grace of God. You see, God doesn't just pour His grace into us so I can keep it to myself. He pours the grace in so that I can in turn pour it out and help others. 
Now, sometimes that pouring out of the grace of God means we have to confront one another about sin in each other's lives. I have, you know, I've been in pastoral ministry for 30 years, and I have yet to have someone say to me, or at least on extremely rare occasions, but more times than not, if you have to say, hey, there's something in your life you need to get right with God, thank you so much for telling me that. I really appreciated that. I came to church this morning, and I needed a rebuke, and you gave it to me, and I just love you for it, Pastor. What do most of us do when somebody rebukes us, gets on us, shows us something in our life that needs to be king? What business of that is yours? You sticking your nose up in my stuff. I don't want to hear that. Well, I, they were mean to me, et cetera, et cetera. We, we don't like receiving that kind of grace. I don't know of any child, maybe some of y'all do, but I don't know of many children that look up at their parents when they get disciplined and say to them, thank you so much for disciplining me. Thank you so much for sending me to my room. I cherish time out and you put me in it today. I will love you forever for having put me in time out today. You take something away from them that they like and they want you messing around with and shouldn't. What do they do? They get ticked off about it, etc. Well, you see, the more we mature in Christ, the better able we're able to handle the correction and the coaching and the discipline that we're supposed to receive. And that is a form of the grace of God that's coming into our lives. And we need to receive that and we encourage one another in that way. Now, we're talking a lot about grace. What is grace? First of all, let me give you a statement that was given to me when I was a kid and I remembered all my life. It sort of goes with an acronym. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's all the riches of God that He wants to give to us and pour out in our lives, but it comes at the price of Jesus giving His life for us on the cross. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace of God is the love of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the coaching of God. And you see, when it comes to our sin, the grace of God means that God is never going to be satisfied with showing us and teaching us and helping us to manage our sin. He is only going to be concerned about eradicating sin from our lives. He doesn't come and say, I'll just clean up the messes that sin causes in your life and help you get back in the game again. He's going to say, let's get rid of this now so that it doesn't keep dragging you under. God's never going to be satisfied to allow it to stay in our lives and just manage the damage control of it. He's going to say, let's get rid of it so that you can get back in line with me and not know the damaging effects of sin. In experiencing the grace of God, he's my father and I'm his child. And the grace of God is about spending time with him. It's about sharing life with him. It's about knowing the challenges that he gives us. Now, how does the grace of God work in our lives? We're going to look at two passages of Scripture. Stay in the book of Hebrews and go to chapter 4 and verse 16. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. We're going to see how the grace of God works in our lives. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then with confidence, notice that key phrase there, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find his grace, his love, his forgiveness, his coaching, etc., to help in our time of need. Now, when I was a boy growing up, they used to, the prayers they prayed in church always talked about the throne of grace, and I could never figure out what in the world they were talking about. All I could imagine was up in heaven, there's this great big fancy throne that God was sitting on, and somehow or another you're trying to get up to it. What in the world do they mean by the term of the throne of grace? Because it's really, that to me is the key phrase in this verse, drawing near to the throne of grace. So what does it mean in prayer when I draw near to the throne of grace? In the ancient Roman world out of which Hebrew was, was written, a throne communicated two key ideas. The first was authority. When you thought about a throne, you thought and conceived and understood the concept of authority. And so when I draw near to the throne of grace, it is the idea that I am drawing near to the authority of God. That when I come to the Lord, I recognize His position, I recognize His authority, and I submit to His authority. So if I'm going to walk in grace, and if I'm going to experience grace, then what I first have to do is submit to the authority of God. Folks, if we're going to know the grace of God, we've got to first submit to the authority of God. We've got to walk in obedience to the Lord if we're going to experience the grace of God. If I am walking away from the Lord, walking in disobedience to the Lord, doing my own thing and blowing God off, I'm not going to experience the grace of God. So the first thing I have to do is draw near, but in drawing near to Him, I recognize and I respect His authority. If I don't respect the authority of Jesus in my life, then everything else in my walk with Him is going to mess up. It all begins with recognizing and submitting to His authority. Now, the second idea behind the throne of grace, behind the concept of throne, was power. In the ancient world, when you heard the word the throne of the emperor or whoever it was, then you knew that you were in the presence of power. In those days, it was absolute supreme power. And so the concept of throne carried the idea of power behind it. So that when you and I approach the throne of God's grace, we are approaching and encountering the power of God. Now, follow me on this. The more I understand and appreciate the power of God, the more I'm going to appreciate the grace of God. If I see God as some weakling who's struggling to get his act together, and who just sort of mesmerized and blown away by what's going on down here on this earth, then what's going to happen when I try to trust him for grace? I'm going to see his grace as weak, inadequate, can't get the job done. If I see God's power is absolute, as strong, as imminent, as involved in my situation, as able to touch and change situations, then I am going to anticipate that His grace is going to be the same. You see, when you and I don't really trust the grace of God, and when we think the grace of God is inadequate, and we got to handle it and do it in our own wisdom and in our own power, because we don't think God can really get the job done, we don't pray over situations, but instead trust ourselves, we try to live in our own strength and energy, what we're really saying is, that the power of God is inadequate. That God is not as strong as we maybe are verbally saying He is. So this idea was that when I approach God, I look at Him and I say, I believe your grace can touch and change this day because your grace is the power of the resurrection. 
Your grace has already demonstrated itself on hanging on a cross for three and a half hours and taking all my sin and shame. Your grace has already demonstrated its strength by rising from the dead three days later after you were placed in it. Everything that Jesus faced, he faced down and conquered and walked away from victorious. In some cases, even danced away from victorious. That is the power of the grace of God. So when I call upon the grace of God for my sin, I believe that I am cleansed and that I am set free because His grace, the power of His grace, cleanses me and sets me free. I believe when I wrestle with grief in my life that it is His grace that can take me to the next day and that it is more powerful than the overwhelming loss that I'm experiencing in my life. I believe that when I encounter and wrestle with loneliness in my life that when He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that the power of His presence is stronger than the power of the loneliness that is surrounding me in life. No matter what I face, His grace is stronger because His grace is backed up and infused with His power. That is the idea of that. Now, Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. How do we experience it? How does grace work? Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, God gave the law and we broke it all over the place. So the more he put the law out there, the more we broke it. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What Paul is saying here, church at Rome, is that God gave his law. And what do you and I do? We just broke it all over the place, which is sin. So now we got a problem. God says, don't do this. We go off and do it. God says, don't do this. We go off and do it. Let me demonstrate how it works. Don't, I don't want you to think right now about pink elephants. I don't want you to think right now about pink elephants. How many of you are thinking about pink elephants right now? All right, they just haven't been on your brain in a long time. And the pink elephants all of a sudden went dancing through there like they used to do on Hee Haw back in the 70s. All right. Although those days it was pink pigs. <laughs> See, when God comes along and he says, I don't want you to do something, our sinful nature just jumps out there and does it and thinks it and goes where we're told not to go. Sin just begins to abound in our lives. You all know what it was like when you were a child and the teacher told you not to do something. What did you do? Everything in you wanted to do what the teacher just told you. You remember the little story about the little boy who was told sit down, and he stood up. He said, sit down. teacher said, sit down, and he stood up. And finally, the teacher got right up his face and said, sit down. And he sat down. And then the little boy looked up at her and says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. <laughs> and that's the way we operate. Even when we are behaving ourselves, we're telling God, I want to really be doing something else. So what does God do? When our sin increases. He says that his grace abounds all the more. You can't out the grace of God. Now I'm not saying that the Lord's saying just go out here and rip snorts in all over the place. You can experience grace. Paul says that's not the purpose of the grace of God. Well, This is how it works. We come to the Lord with all our sin and all of our disobedience. 
And God looks at us and he says, I'm going to forgive you if you ask. I'm going to cleanse you if you seek it. I'm going to work in your life and I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you to myself. But I'm also going to start setting you free from it. Because what God's grace says, I want to free you and deliver you from even the desire to do it. You see, the grace of God in relationship to sin is not just forgiveness and mercy. It starts there. But then it takes us to the place that he steps in and begins to liberate us from the desire for the sin. But, oh, follow me on this. And this is where we have to let grace has its full work. We go in forgiveness from being set free from sin, but he continues to deliver us to falling more in love with Jesus. So the more in love with Jesus I am becoming, the less I want to sin. You see, the ultimate work of grace is not just cutting us free from sin. The ultimate work of grace is loving Jesus and worshiping Jesus and getting close to Jesus and hanging out with Jesus and staying with him in a relationship that's getting closer and deeper with him. Illustrate it this way. When I was raising our son, you know, and he's growing up in a preacher's home, which is not the easiest place in the world to grow up. One of the things that someone said to me very, very early on in Jonathan's life was, you know, make sure you spend a whole lot of time with him. And so one of the things that I tried to work with and Helen and I tried to work with and doing with him was, you know, is not just having rules about you couldn't do this, couldn't do that, etc. But let's have a lot of fun together. And let's build relationship together. And let's hang out a lot together. And that's the idea of what he wants to do with us in grace. It's not the idea that God comes to us and says, okay, here's a rule book and these are all the rules and just keep all the rules and worry about the rules all the time. What he's saying is the rules are there to guide you and keep you out of trouble, but they're there to provide the opportunity for us to grow a relationship together. For us to love each other. Because I want to spend time with you. I want to spend the journey of life with you. I want us to run this race together. That is the idea of the grace of God abounding all the more. Now, let me hit one other thing on, on this, keeping the pace with grace, and then we're going to look at the bitterness side of it. There's so much in grace, but I, I had to address this one. It was the concept in the New Testament of adoption. Now, adoption worked very differently in the ancient Roman world. Adoption in our culture is primarily where a family goes and adopts a child. Interestingly enough, in the Roman world, often teenagers were adopted, and a lot of times adult men or women were adopted. It was very popular to adopt adults into families in the ancient world. Now, in ancient Rome, if you were adopted, you were considered to be in the same legal position as a real biological child in the family. Roman emperors even adopted men to continue the royal line. In fact, the famous Roman emperor Nero was adopted himself. That's how he became an emperor in the, blood, in the line of the Roman emperors because he was adopted by a Roman emperor into his family. Adoption brought changes to every area of your life. You were separated from your old life, and you made a commitment to your new family. The family was the place of security, and it was the place of fulfillment. Members knew their place in their family. It was well-defined, and they carried out the tasks that were given to them. And adoption was considered a treasured status. New opportunities were provided. 
So get the feel of how Roman adoption worked. You're just going through your life, and a family decides they're going to adopt you. So they adopt you. You now have the same legal status in that family as if you had been biologically born into that family. You now have all the privileges, the opportunities, and the tasks and responsibilities of being in that family. You are adopted into that family. Your security and your fulfillment is now in your new family. You cut off everything from your old family, and you walk into the place of your new family. The Bible, when it talks about in the New Testament, us being adopted into his family, that is one of the strongest aspects of the grace of God, that he takes us from the family we have been in of sin and darkness and shame and of the power of Satan, and he brings us into his family. He owns us. He claims us. He gave his blood in order to adopt us into his family, and we are now considered his. We belong to him. And then Jesus topped it all off by teaching us this. Jesus says, when you pray, use the term Abba, Father. Now, the term Abba was an Aramaic term that they used in those days to address their dads with. It spoke of respect, it spoke of authority, but it also spoke of closeness. Now, follow me on this. This is what's so beautiful about it. When the Scriptures teach us that when we pray to the Father God to say Abba to Him in that sense of closeness to the Father God, that He is the one of our respect, I trust His authority, but I'm also close to Him, and I'm growing in a close relationship with Him. The idea of that is Jesus is saying, take the same term that I use, I say Abba, Father. Take the same term, the same address that I used, and I'm putting it in your mouth on your tongue. Because I am creating an openness so you can relate to the Father God the same way that I relate to the Father God. That is the idea of being adopted. You and I wonder, does God hear us when we pray? Yes, He hears us when we pray. Because we can address the Father and talk to Him the same way the Son talked to Him. And the Son went before us to open the way for us to talk to the Father. That's what it means to be adopted into the family of God. Now, he goes on, verses 15 through 17, and he shows us the other side of this. Keeping pace with grace, bitterness destroys the pace. Verse 15, he says, let no root of bitterness set up in you. It's the idea of bitter envy or spite. He says, don't let it spring up in you. It is the idea of a hidden seed that takes root and grows. But it's a quick process. Now, there are a lot of ways I could go with that. But a lot of us struggle with bitterness because somebody beat us out for something we wanted. And we thought we should have had it. And deep inside of us, a bitter root begins to spring up. We begin to envy them. We get jealous of them. We get spiteful about towards them. We don't really want to be around them. We like to cut them off, cut them down, and knock them out of the game if we possibly could. Because they got something that we felt like we earned, we deserved, we should have gotten. And they got it instead of us. And that becomes a false God that sets up in our lives a root 
of bitterness. Now, it's interesting what he does in this passage. He says in verse 15 that many become defiled by it. The word there means to be stained or to be polluted. It is the idea of a disease that spreads all over the body. And so what he's saying here is that bitterness spreads all over us, but then we start spreading it all over the place. Have you ever noticed how we do that? We start trying to drop in things negative to the person that we ticked off with. We start trying to get a posse together to move against them, to push them out. We just start to start spreading it all over the place. Any way that we can spread it, we're going to spread it. That's and we're defiling people. We're staining them. We are dying them, so to speak, with the same bad mess that's inside of us. And folks, we can do this extremely easy in our families. Man, we get ticked off with aunt so-and-so or cousin so-and-so or a brother or a sister. And what do we start doing trying to smear them to the rest of the family? He says it, it defiles, it stains, it pollutes. Now, it's interesting what he does, the way he illustrates this defilement thing. He talks about Esau. And the first thing he does here in talking about Esau Verse 16, it says that no one is sexually immoral and unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, the first expression that he uses there, verse 16, as he talks about Esau and what's connected with him, he says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. The word that's translated out of the Greek language, sexually immoral, is a Greek word, pornos, from which we get our English word, pornography. And so he's, the first thing that he's identifying there and getting stained is sexual sin, in particularly anything that has to do or connected with pornography. We have to think it before we act it. And he, basically what he's saying there is you've got to make sure that your mind doesn't begin to go down that route of pornography. Now, why is that such an issue? Pornography makes God unreal to us. It has the powerful effect of making God unreal to us. We just lose all sense of where God is, what he's doing, what he's saying. It is also a form of bondage that begins to drag us down and destroy relationships in our lives. It sets up a false God or a bitter root inside of us. And it really begins to mess up relationships after a while. And the second thing he talks about with Esau here is he said he sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, what in the world is he talking about there? Let's go back to that story in Genesis. Esau comes in from the field. He's been out hunting. He's very hungry. And he walks into the room. And his brother, younger brother Jacob is sitting there. And Jacob is making up some wonderful stew. Well, Esau's been out all day long. And he wants some of that stew. So he looks at his brother and he says, Jacob, I want some stew. And Jacob looks back at Esau and he says, well, you get it if the price is right. And Esau says, I'll sell my birthright to you to get some stew. Now, the birthright always came to the oldest in the family, in the ancient Jewish family. The oldest born male. And that was Esau. And it meant that you were the recipient of all of the promises of God to your family, and you pass them through you and on to the rest of the family. It was considered the highest honor for the oldest male to take on that birthright and to have that birthright 
and to be able to live in it and live out of it. It also meant that you were going to, in Esau's case, it meant that he was the recipient of all of the promises of God that had been made to Abraham and to Isaac. Part of which, on those promises, was that the Messiah was going to come through his bloodline. I mean, it was heavy-duty stuff here. And you know what he's basically saying? Hey, you can have it, Jacob, as long as I can get some stew. The promises of God, the presence of God, the work of God, the bloodline of the Messiah mean nothing to me. They don't mean any more to me than a bunch of stew. So here, you can have it. You can have it. And the idea of what he's talking about here when he talks about bitterness destroying the pace of grace is when we sell off the grace of God in our lives for stuff that is cheap, no count, and does not last. When in my life, things that I am willing to sell out for doesn't matter as long as I get what I want when I want it. And notice it says that he sought... He went out and wept bitterly. Let me illustrate what I'm trying to say here. I got a board here. It's in good shape. I got a spike. If I take this nail and drive the spike into this board, I have wounded the board. I have messed the board up. I can come back and I can remove the spike out of the board. And the spike is gone from the board. But there's still a hole in the spike, excuse me, in the board. Even when the nail is gone, the wound from the spike will remain. This is what happened with Esau. God gave him a great board of a life. And he drove a spike right into it. And even when the spike was removed. The wound was still there. The scar was still there. This is what I think he's trying to say to this passage. And I need you to listen carefully to what I'm going to say. Our lives are like this board. God gives it to us in good shape. And sin, disobedience from the Lord, we start driving the nails, the spikes into it. The longer we persist in the sin, the deeper it goes in. We come to the Lord and we ask for forgiveness and for the grace of God, and God gives that grace, and He begins to remove the spikes and the nails that we've driven into our lives. But folks, there are some scars, there are some choices that we make that God cannot fully clean up the scars. There are things that we do that He will forgive and He will remove the spikes, but the scars are still there. There are years that God cannot give back to us. And that's why it's so important that we seek the grace of God daily. Because if we don't, we fill this board up and God will pull the nails out. And God will do His best to bring healing, but there are scars there that, yes, we will carry with us for a lifetime. And that's why He's trying to say to us, keep the pace of grace. 
Don't allow that root of bitterness, whatever it is, to set up. In the 1940s, there was a lady and her family who lived in Holland. They were followers of the Lord Jesus. And the Nazis overran their town in 1940 when they took over Holland. They very quickly understood that the Nazis were out to kill Jews and imprison them and send them to concentration camps. And so they began to hide Jews in their home and smuggle them through their home to get them out of Holland to freedom. The Nazis eventually discovered what they were doing and went into the home and arrested all the members of the family. Corrie Tin Boone was the lady who told the story of what happened to her and her family. Her family was removed, separated from one another, and she and her sister Betsy were sent to the concentration camp processing area called Ravensbrück. And there they went through horrible situations with living in filth, being beaten up, stripped naked in front of other men, German guards as they laughed at them. Eventually, Betsy, her sister, died in that concentration camp. Following the Second World War, Corey Ten Boom began traveling Europe and telling the story of the grace of God and how he had sustained her through the concentration camp and all that she'd been through. But then there came a night in Munich, Germany, where she had to deal with the root of bitterness in her life that she totally did not anticipate. And I want to share her story of how she kept pace with grace. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had ever seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And as I who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale, the need to forgive kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness 
any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on His. When He tells us to love our enemies, He gives, along with the command, the love itself. I want to read that last paragraph one more time. And I believe we got a picture of Corey Ten Boone in her older years. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on His. When He tells us to love our enemies, He gives, along with the command, the love itself. That's keeping pace with the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the story of Corey Ten Boone and how, Lord, you enabled her to keep pace with your grace. Jesus, we ask that you would help us to do the same, to not allow the roots of bitterness to rise up in us, to, Lord Jesus, not allow us to become consumed with anything other than loving you and following you and knowing you and serving you, Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if, if you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus, that I want to encourage you to pray a simple prayer to him. Lord Jesus, forgive me of sin. Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. With your help, Lord Jesus, I will follow you. And if you've made that decision, if you'd let us know so that we could get in touch with you and so that we can help you grow in a relationship with Jesus. And now let's stand together and let's worship our Lord in the spirit of prayer.